For too long, the fertility market has been bewildering, overwhelming, and frankly, I think has downright ignored the needs and difficult experiences of the people they're supposed to be serving. Ovum has made it their mission to change this completely. Now, I am extremely choosy about who I promote on this podcast because I'm very protective of my listeners and audience, which is why you've probably only ever heard one spoken ad like this before. So it's with complete confidence, excitement and pride that I can share this amazing company with you. Ovum care about you, truly. From creating products to support conception and fertility that are designed by doctors and backed by the latest science without cutting any corners, from adding access to meditations I've personally written and recorded inside their pregnancy test boxes, Ovum is founded by individuals who've navigated infertility themselves. I really couldn't be more proud to partner with them and tell you about them. Ovum is driven by the belief that everyone who is trying to conceive deserves better, and I am 100% behind this ethos. So head over to startwithovum.com and use code LIFERAFT10 for 10% off their tests and supplements. We have to honour our individual heartbreaks because if we don't and we don't deal with that, it'll sort of show up somewhere else. Hello and welcome to Fertility Life Raft with me, Alice Rose. This podcast is for you if you find yourself longing for a baby and then finding that the path to bringing them home is not easy. It's for you if you've had enough of feeling like you're losing sight of yourself because that's how I felt too. And it's also for you if you're supporting someone going through this and want to understand a little bit more. So welcome to a totally safe space, honest conversation, real and raw stories shared and a little bit of topical stuff too because I really believe it's not all down to you to get through this. The world needs to catch up too. Hello and welcome back very warmly to the Life Rough podcast. It's uh, an honour to have you as always. A big thank you to everyone who messaged me after the last episode went out with Kat Brown. Um, we had some pretty extraordinary feedback, so a real thank you to that. This podcast is is a labour of love. Um, I make it because I want people to feel less alone and understood, and it's so important to me that it does that job. And so I, when I hear from you, it it really does help us to continue to yeah make this content and bring it to you. Um, so thank you again and and please do share it rate review all of that it really helps it really really helps every single one every individual one of you (laughs) is making this what it is so thank you for that um i'm really so delighted to introduce this week's episode guest and she is natasha lunn She is a writer, author and journalist who works as a features director at Red Magazine. She also writes a beautiful bi-monthly email newsletter called Conversations on Love. And I remember that Natasha, I mean, we'll share a little bit more about this in our interview in a minute, but um, Natasha started listening to this podcast and I felt incredibly um, humbled uh, that she was listening and that she got in touch to say that it was it was helpful for her at that point and that just felt really wonderful, um, really great. And then I was reading her amazing newsletter and um, 
I did a little bit of, of writing for for it and then eventually for Red Magazine as well. So it felt like a really special thing that I was able to support someone who I admired so greatly from afar. And, and now I just feel really honoured and, and grateful to Natasha for coming on this podcast. And because in the last, uh, within the last few weeks, she has released her first book and it is just absolutely amazing. It's the kind of book that I just feel like everyone should buy and give to everybody that they know. There are so many little golden magical nuggets in there, just life-changing little pearls of wisdom, really. And I just love it so much. And it, the, the book is called Conversations on Love, and we'll we'll share a little bit more about that in, in the interview as well. Um, but I really hope that you enjoy this. Um, please do let me know if you... If you listen and what you think and definitely um, do go go and buy this book as well because it's just magical. So without further ado, let me welcome to the show Natasha Lunn. Ah, Natasha, we were just saying how much we were both looking forward to this chat. Um, Yeah, actually, I'm going to say this before I get on to the other thing, but I just wanted to thank you because I was thinking about um, your podcast and I just remember so vividly, I can almost feel the fridge on my back when I, it was about nine months after my miscarriage and I thought I was pregnant again. I think my period was, it was so late that I was like, this has to be a pregnancy um and then it wasn't so I just got my period I think maybe it was like a really early miscarriage it was so late but who knows and I just you know that feeling where I just like slid back down onto the floor with the fridge on my back and I just was crying there and I just remember listening to your podcast and it was one you were speaking to Kat and you were talking about friendship and how difficult it can be and I just remember feeling so less alone and I just I think I even messaged you but so I come from a place of of listening to your podcast and completely um not in even a professional sense just in such a personal way um I'm very grateful for it (laughs) Natasha that that honestly it means the world because I remember when you messaged me and you just said "I'm, I'm listening and it was it was and you you know you said how it was helpful and um and, you know, I always say, like, I love hearing from people. It's, like, really lovely to kind of have conversations and then actually hear back from people who are listening. So I always really, really appreciate everybody's messages. And then our relationship continued because then it turned out that you have the, had this amazing newsletter, Conversations on Love, which you, I was so honoured when you asked me to write, like, a little um, little bit for your Christmas newsletter that went out I think it was 2019 Christmas 2019 actually gosh was it that long ago yes about um and you'd poured all your energy into was it was it a Christmas fair yeah it was a little cabaret thing that I had created like back in like when I was going through all of my stuff my fertility stuff and it was um you would ask me to write um just a few words about moments of beauty because you were interested in like, uncovering moments of beauty and because I've got my hashtag TTC look for beauty so we were looking at yeah what was it that I was doing myself in in all of that but anyway all to say like it was such an honor and then um and then I wrote that piece for Red Magazine about how to um 
yeah how to support somebody going through it so so I feel like I just like the thanks is all mine really because it's just honestly like the biggest honor to be able to contribute to what you're putting out there too and now in just a few days time you've got your book is is coming out properly isn't it yes yes it's it's um Thursday 15th out out in the world um and as I was saying to you just before we were um, recording that I've been doing lots and lots of interviews and um, a big part of the book is about miscarriage and trying to conceive and I haven't really been asked about that um, at all and despite sort of trying to bring it up a few times um, because it was a big part of it and it's actually really a lot of it overlaps with things that I've learned about love and so much of what you learn about love I think really came from that place or is useful in that place um so I'm so happy to sort of devote this podcast to that area because it's yeah maybe people feel a bit awkward to bring it up sometimes I mean I I'm I'm really surprised that nobody's asked you about that because reading your amazing book to me I mean obviously I'm reading it through a lens so that comes up but but so much of you know the conversations that you've had exactly that they overlap and there are so many themes that come with it and I know that I mean there's loads that I'm going to ask you but before we get on to that yes would you be happy to share your journey your story yes and yeah I was thinking about this because I um listeners in all honesty when Alice asked me to come on I said I don't you know should I come on because I've only had one miscarriage Although we were about to start um, IVF, which I'll explain in a minute, when I got pregnant, we didn't have to go through that. And part of me even writing about this was thinking, can I even discuss this when I have friends and have interviewed so many women who've been through rounds and rounds of IVF, who've lost multiple babies. And I remember seeing um, just kind of, it was after the miscarriage, I remember seeing something on Twitter and a woman saying, if you haven't had at least two years of um, trying after your miscarriage or of trying in general, then you can't discuss this topic or, or something like this. And I remember at the time feeling really wounded by that. But now I completely understand what she meant. And I, first of all, will say to any listeners listening to this who are feeling oh, that woman has had a very relatively easy journey and I'm feeling so frustrated that she's talking about this. I completely receive that frustration and annoyance because I think we need to get much better at just making space for all of these messy feelings. And I learned that because I had a friend who was having a very complicated IVF journey. And I think she found it really difficult when I conceived naturally And then I found it very difficult when I felt she didn't really take my miscarriage or how it felt to me that seriously, because for her, she was feeling so frustrated that I'd had this, I'd conceived. And to her, that was all that she had in her head. Whereas I was feeling so sad that I couldn't even admit I was upset about this miscarriage because I had conceived. And so I think those sorts of um, conversations have just, really made me understand that we have to honor our individual heartbreaks because if we don't and we don't deal with that it'll sort of show up somewhere else and you know for me I sort of had I tried to deny initially that the miscarriage meant anything to me and then I was just having all these very gory dreams and it just 
kept coming up. So I had to deal with that. But I also think we just need to get a lot better at realizing that everyone's situation brings up very painful feelings for them and we have to receive them. So I just want to start off by saying that um, because it's something I've, I've thought about a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I thank you for that, because I remember you saying, oh, I just I'm not sure if I've, you know, been kind of through enough or whatever. And it's something I just hear all the time, though, you know, like people message me and they don't even know where they fit in, you know, within the kind of fertility community on Instagram, for example, they kind of like they're they're really struggling, but they but they look at what other people are going through and they think I can't I can't possibly, you know, compete in quotation marks. I can't compete with that because my journey is nowhere near you know, on paper, not that hard, but exactly as you say, we have to honour and hold the space for everything. And I think actually I'm really glad that you're sharing this because that's a big part of it. And, you know, we'll get into everything that comes up in the in the book with all of the learnings and things that came from this journey and the overlap with your, you know, your exploration of what love means in general, which is just so beautiful. But, you know, that all is so linked with this idea that we are all on our own individual paths and that by honoring each one we actually honor other people as well so really appreciate that and also I felt I have been given space to write this book about love and I wanted to show so um oh I'll I'll tell you my story first and then I'll come on to that so um so I conceived and um miscarried in between 10 11 weeks um and it it's funny because I wanted to write about that to show the length of time that that can feel like and so for me I was I felt there was something wrong so I had gone in for sort of probably three scans by that point so I had seen the heartbeat three times and there was they weren't sure what was going on so by that stage um it felt it felt so far along for me because I didn't have any friends. Well, it turns out I did, but I didn't know of anyone at that point who had miscarried. So I did not go into that even considering that that would be an option. So from the moment I was pregnant, I was just planning the nursery. It was now I think, how did I not know about this whole world and the stats? But it, I think that that was why it was particularly painful for me because there was no moment of what if this doesn't work out and we had just made plans and we had given this baby a name and uh, that was why it was particularly difficult for me um and I assumed that I would be able to conceive after that because a lot of the midwives you know had said to me oh you know you can conceive quite easily um if you try again as soon as you can um And I found trying to have sex after the experience of miscarriage, because I had the um, DNC surgery and I found that very difficult. Um, And I realized then there's lots of things about how anesthetic like holds trauma in the body and just things that you don't, um, you're not, you're not aware of. It just made me realize that my body had remembered a lot of things that perhaps I wasn't. So when I even had, I'm going into lots of detail here because I, I love I it. It's so interesting. When, um, when I had sex for the first time, I literally thought I was really, I, I pushed Dan off me because it was like my body was, there was something in there that it was remembering that I thought I was completely fine. And I just started to realize that my body was 
still grieving in some way. Um, and so it took me a long time to recover. Um, and then we tried for a year to conceive after that. Um, I had been put on Clomid. Um, I had also been given heparin because there was something, they, they found something in my blood that was like, there was a gene mutation or something that meant that I need to take those. Um, and that's a year I write about in the book, which was um, our first year of marriage because I had miscarried just before we were going on honeymoon. And I wanted to write about that year to show how long just a year to conceive can feel, especially when you have just had a loss. And, you know, strangely for me, it was actually the first three months that were the hardest because I had just expected that to happen. And they were actually probably the most lonely. I almost, um, as time went on, you know, after a year, you can say, okay, we can go and have the tests or we can get some help. But actually I found those early months um, particularly helpful, which is again, why I wanted to write about it. Um, and then they discovered that one of my um, tubes, they think had been damaged by the surgery. So they said there were sort of adhesions blocking the tubes. Um, and again, they can't know for sure until they operate. Um, so we were due to start IVF. We found out all this. Again, it's one of those things. I had the IVF in the diary starting to plan you've got another future you've hung on a in, in your mind thinking okay we'll have IVF and get pregnant by this day then that got um scrapped because they thought it would be better if I had the surgery first to perhaps um help fix the tubes and in the end a week before the surgery I got pregnant so it's one of those situations where um yeah, who knows whether it was just a fluke or perhaps it wasn't, I don't know, who knows what happened. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that that takes me up to conceiving. So, yeah, I tell you this now and there's lots of things I look back and I think I probably could have just had IVF rather than having the surgery. Uh, you know, I, I feel like um, I was seeing private doctors. I don't know if what I was being told was you know, pushing me to have an expensive surgery. There's lots of, um, and whether I even needed the heparin injections, um, whether it's too soon for Clomid, all these things looking back, uh, who knows? But um, it's, you know, my husband and I created what we call like the TTC timeline. Mm -hmm. So every time we went into the doctor, we had these printouts of like all the drugs, everything on one piece of, a4 paper so that we didn't have to go in and explain everything again and again um and now I look back at that and think you're taking all this advice from people I didn't really know what was going on um they just told me that that was what's happening oh it's so easy isn't it to look back and be like did I really need to do that like what was going and I, I remember sharing my story once with a complete stranger I can't remember what I think that was at a Christmas party and I for me it's any excuse to bring up infertility <laughs> then I tend yeah. to bring it up because I just think I'd rather have an honest interesting conversation with somebody than just talk about whatever I don't know she asked me what I did or something so I just said oh well this is what I do and and this is why and so I kind of was telling her <laughs> in a bit of an oversharey kind of way probably but I remember her response was something along the lines of um because I kind of went quite quickly into treatment 
for various reasons but I went really quite quickly into it and I remember her just being like oh well maybe if you'd have just waited for a bit longer you know you probably didn't need all of that and I was like um well okay maybe I suppose but how we can't really judge ourselves for making those decisions in the moment can we or like well also my big shame I guess and we'll come on to lessons from the book but one of them um Heather Havaleski, this writer, said, like, the hardest thing is to take a look at honestly what you're feeling and not hang shame on it. And for me, I had this real thing of, you know, after your miscarriage, I think it's the most impossible decision to decide, do you take, do you take the pill? Do you have the surgery? Do you wait? I just was like, how can I make this decision? And I felt I heard that from some people that taking the what's the pill called that you um I, can't, I don't I, I can't I don't. remember <laughs> that that was re- that that is really really painful mm. and I had friends who who found it really difficult and so I said to myself I was feeling so vulnerable then I was like, I don't think I can go through that pain right now I'm gonna have the surgery because also I, the um fetus had been inside me for so long at that point that I was, and I, I sort of talk about the book, I was being catcalled by this builder who's like, nice ass. I was like, it, it had to laugh. It was like, I've got a dead, I've got a dead fetus inside me and I'm still being catcalled. It was that, but mm-hmm. I found that by that point, I just wanted to get it out. I, mm-hmm. I, so I opted for the surgery, but then when, um, when I found out that that had caused me to have issues with con- conceiving the surgery, mm-hmm. um, I completely took that on myself thinking, I was a wimp. I I would have I wouldn't have damaged my tubes if I'd just taken the pill, but I was a coward and I opted for the surgery when I didn't need to have it. And you know, now I deserve all these problems. Um and I just you just there could have been problems if I'd taken the pill anyway. You just but there just feels like there is no right decision in that moment, I think. Yeah, and we take on so much shame and so much blame, you know, whether it's that decision that you made or whether it's another decision that you made you know I've got people who say that they are you know I think that somebody in my membership actually her treatment's been postponed because she ended up contracting COVID so she wasn't able to do that and then she's just she said I'm hating myself for not isolating and it's so hard because you think well you were making the decision you're the best decisions that you could in that moment and that's that's and that's all we can ever possibly do isn't it but but we just drag we take this shame this shame and this blame around with us and it can really um I think that's that I think that keeps us in that feeling of stuckness as well that trapped feeling that people feel did you feel like that did you feel kind of stuck and trapped or left behind when you were going through all of this in in my friendships certainly left behind um you know I'm late 30s now obviously it's a time when a lot of people are trying to conceive or struggling or able to and there are so many moments um that I try and be honest about my envy and just messy feelings and one I remember I didn't actually put this in the book but um a friend was in labor and so and we've got like a friendship group whatsapp and the husband was sort of up almost live whatsapping the labor stages and everybody was like yes this is amazing and I just physically couldn't reply I couldn't say go I just found that experience it wasn't like one message it was like this kind of repeated thing Mm -hmm. 
and I just yeah there were instances um like that and getting you know I I think what's hard when you miscarry of being pregnant at the same stage as people and then watching their babies grow up um and thinking that your baby would have been that age so yeah all that stuff and friendship feeling very left behind but I think for me and I don't compare this for everyone because for some people this won't resonate but the reason for me that I also wrote the book is I I started to see a lot of parallels between the longing I had for romantic love in my 20s and feeling that you know I was somebody who always wanted to meet a partner in my early 20s and you know maybe get married late 20s have kids when I was 30 not that I should have had that template but that was the template that I had at that time so when I was single for sort of almost two decades um that was very painful in a lot of similar ways of wrestling with uncertainty not knowing if it will ever happen so for me the feeling of being stuck I almost craved bad news sometimes I almost just wanted to be told something Mm -hmm. and and the feeling of not even having any certainty to wrestle with was what I found difficult um and I, I feel like stuck, it was more like being stuck between two possible futures. I think that's what's particularly painful for women who are trying to conceive because you you feel like there is a possible future. You almost don't want to hope for it because it's painful to hope for that. And there's also another future that you kind of want to plan for in your mind that could even be possible, but then it's almost too painful to contemplate. So yes, I feel like... Um, that feeling of stuck for me was just being trapped between the two possible futures. Yeah. And I, I, from your book, I've actually put, cause you've put in the introduction about that, haven't you? That, that, mm-hmm. that crossover, the longing that you mentioned there was, and that's, that's what really resonated for me because you said, yeah, although I thought I'd outgrown my propensity towards longing, there were many similarities between my longing for a baby in my thirties and my longing for a boyfriend the decade before. And then you said both made me focus more focused on the love I didn't have rather than the love I did. Both sometimes tipped me towards self-pity and both made me compare myself to others. I feel like there was an area of happiness in my life I was excluded from. Yes. Yeah. And I, for me, a large part of trying to live inside that longing was understanding that the romantic love in my ha- that I had in, in my life and, f- and familial love, parent, parental love, like I had been longing for that romantic relationship for decades and I'm very lucky to have um, a wonderful partner, not only in life, but really in the, in the fertility stuff as well. And I, I couldn't believe that I was now just overlooking this love. And of course that's natural to do. I know women listening to this who are in the middle of that, like that kind of laser like longing, I think is completely natural. But for me, interviewing lots of different people, people who'd lost husbands, people who'd lost wives, people who'd had accidents, it just really helped me to pull back a little from my longing so that I could, yes, admit this is what I wanted and have compassion for myself that wanting it was very painful, but also be able to sit next to my husband on a beach and see him and know that I was 
very lucky to have that love and that there's also lots of people who were really longing to fall in love with someone and find someone um and you know we talk about not really making space for people who've had different fertility journeys but I actually think for a lot of people who are single they have a have a, a sadness around children and babies but they feel they can't even enter a conversation because they don't have the possibility to even try to conceive so for me it was realizing even the fact that I get to try at this is a privilege um and I, I it was trying to hold those both things it's difficult to talk about because it's not that you're saying oh you can't moan about trying to conceive because you've got a partner it's not that it's just can you hold both things at once yeah I mean it's that it's that holding of different like lots of things at once that is the I think that's the key really because you need to be able to feel that love and that gratitude for what you do have and at the same time as feeling the longing and the pain but but living inside that like you say like how 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 do you do that but I think yeah that's what I loved about this book was was because and, and then yeah that the end of that paragraph about the longing that you say I understood then there would always be something to long for in love if I continued to see it in this narrow way and then you say a boyfriend a marriage a baby a second baby a grandchild another decade on this earth with my mother father or husband so I began to ask more questions and began to write the book and then throughout the book there is just so many beautiful kind of it's like it's very life-affirming isn't it Thank and you. it really is though and it's really and, and that's what comes up for me like talking and, and the overlap between that journey of trying to conceive and your miscarriage and then finding out and learning more about love in the process and what love actually means and what love means to you but the thing that really I think so many people are going to resonate with is that unbearable unknown that you talk about mm. that, and that feeling of just like, how do we live with this uncertainty? So tell me more about that. Tell me what happened when you spoke to people who helped you to see different perspectives. This is, uh, it underpins so many problems in love. Um, and there's so many facets of it. I think one is hope in uncertainty. And that's something I found really difficult because I initially approached it thinking, every month I would hope and then every month it's you know you get your heart broken when your hope is proven wrong and so I got to the stage where I thought this is this is foolish to be hoping every month should I start the month saying I probably won't get pregnant and so if I do it will be a a nice surprise and if I don't then I've protected myself Mm -hmm. and that was sort of where I was at when I began to write the book and um I had a conversation with Melanie Reed, who's a journalist for The Times, who um, was paralyzed in a horse riding accident. And she was talking about uncertainty in the situation of not knowing whether she would walk again in hospital. And she said to me, so she she's not walking now. And she said to me, the hope she had in those early weeks and months in hospital that she would walk is what got her through. And she said it was not to do with being proven right or wrong or the fact that she can't walk now. So hoping was wrong. It was the important thing was hoping through that uncertainty gave her the resilience to survive that period. And that really changed everything for me because I thought, 
oh, I'm not a fool for hoping, like, even if I'm proven wrong, even if I never get pregnant, even if every month my hope's um, getting proven wrong, it's about hoping either way. And that hoping in the face of uncertainty is not just courageous, but we cannot love anyone without doing that. Like, if we're really honest, we sign up to a relationship knowing that one of us is going to die before the other. And we go into a marriage not knowing who's going to change, who's going to, you know, want to live in a different country or who's going to lose their job. Or, you know, we go into that marriage with so much uncertainty. We begin our friendships at this level when we're all living lives at a very close, um, you know, we're graduating at the same time and we're living in flats together and we don't know what those friendships will look like in the future. And so the more I interview people about love, the more I understood that uncertainty is a burden and a gift because certainly there were some aspects of my life in romantic love for instance that the reality of the relationship I had is more beautiful than any of the fantasies that I'd entertained about relationships or men when I was younger and it turned out that not knowing I would find this love it means I'm much more grateful for having it now and so in that very particular case it was a gift in trying to conceive it is a very very heavy burden um but I just learned it's not foolish to hope and you have to divorce hope from the outcome yes. and that that was a real um epiphany for me yeah definitely that kind of focus on the outcome for me was the thing that made me go crazy with it because I couldn't get past the idea that I had to, yeah that ha- having to know what the outcome was going to be so by divorcing the hope from the outcome it gives you the the space to live and it's a, you're admitting that you're being kind to yourself by hoping you're not hoping for the sake of what's going to happen or, or that you're kind of you know getting through it by telling yourself it's going to be okay it's not that you are saying I am going to allow you to hope during this phase because that is a more joyful way to survive this horrible time that I'm going through. Um, And the other thing is that when I was pregnant after the miscarriage, you know, a lot of that, again, not just trying to conceive, it was just, I do not want to hope. I do not want to even acknowledge this baby or hold my stomach or do anything because it is too painful. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's this fear, the the fear or the, I guess, refusal to hope, it doesn't make it any less painful for yourself. Sadly, we cannot cushion or protect ourselves from that sadness. Even when I said to myself, I'm absolutely not going to get pregnant this month, it didn't hurt any less really when I did find out, you know, it's like you're lying to, I was lying to myself that I had completely protected myself from any um, heartbreak. So yeah, it's, it's the two things divorcing the hope from the outcome and being kind to yourself but also understanding that the fear and the negativity sadly can't protect you either yeah exactly that and you were saying there like actually if you you sort of layer on a kind of false thing of going well I'm just gonna think that it's not gonna happen then that's lying to yourself so actually if we're always kind of leaning towards truth like just being really truthful with what we want and if if what we want is the hope and that's what we need, then at least then we're living kind of in alignment with our truth. And then we don't have that 
weird kind of friction internally, which makes things even worse. Yeah, denial to yourself. But I I guess I would say um, one of the other most useful pieces of advice that I found about longing, and this was from um, Heather Havrileski, who writes the Ask Polly Agony Art column. She said, because I think I, you know, I'm listening to this podcast, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what's my strategy for dealing with this? What's the best way? Is it hope? Is it this? And she actually said to me, the best way to deal with longing is from a fluid position. Mm. So she said, it's really about tuning into where you are on that day and figuring out what you need. And she said, sometimes absolutely believing that it is going to happen is a very useful position. So there were some days when I just needed a friend to say to me, you are 100% going to be a mother. And on other days, that would be really painful to me because I would say, you don't know, how can you guarantee that to me? And on those days, it would be more helpful to say, okay, well, worst case scenario, if I never have children, what is the best possible version of that life going to look like? And there was a way in which that was helpful because you you try to look at your life and think, even if I don't get what I want, I have a good life. I have, I have some things to be grateful for. So I'm wary of saying, you know, always hope. I think Heather's advice is more useful to say, it's basically, okay, here's the day. What picture do I need to tune into today? And what do I need to give myself? And I found that really helpful. Absolutely. That is something that I teach and reclaim, which is my mindset goals. It's that daily check-in because without knowing what, what, what is coming up, that day how can you possibly because then you're not if you if you if it isn't hope that you want that day like if it is that okay actually I need I need some realism today I need to think about what am I going to do if I don't if it doesn't ever happen for me if that's Mm. and then you're and then you're saying to yourself no no no, this is going to work this is going to work then we're not in truth and we're not we're not giving ourselves what we need on that day so yeah completely agree and I love the idea of fluidity being the marker for that and um, I think we're so desperate, aren't we, to find some sort of tools or lessons. Um, and it's sort of crazy to think that there can be a fixed way of dealing with something that is ever changing every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think, you know, Melanie Reed also says she had these like 15 minute pity parties where she would sort of go and look herself in the mirror and admit how awful she felt and pity herself. And then she would sort of zip herself back up and go out. And I do think it's important to have, you know, I just be like, I can have one day where, and I felt this when I was being, when I was single as well. I just say, I'm going to have one day where I feel really sorry for myself that I have been on dating apps for a year and I haven't met anyone and I really want a boyfriend. You know, as, as I would just allow myself to indulge the misery. <laughs> and then I'd be like, tomorrow, no, we just have to get up swipe right try again and I I do think that we it's useful to make space to just let ourselves be a little cynical every now and again as well yeah definitely well because we're human beings aren't we and we need to just be able to just go do you know what this is really shit at the moment (laughs) yeah I I do need to I hate the word moan because I just think it's not moaning I just think it's just saying how we're feeling do you know what I mean so I guess there's like a, a balance between you can take it too far and kind of stay in that pity party for like a prolonged period of time where it's not helpful. So yeah. by putting that kind of boundary around it by saying, okay, I'm giving myself a day or I'm giving myself 15 minutes a day, whatever it is you, you need, then that helps you to kind of make sure you're giving yourself some time, but then also going, all right. 
Yeah, I think it's about giving yourself enough space for it that you feel you're not hiding your real feelings, but not enough room for it that they can kind of become a bit of like self-harm because self-pity is a painful place to be. So I think there's a real... um, there's a real sort of time limit on how long you can be there without worsening your feelings. Yeah, definitely. There's a bit in your amazing chapter of the unbearable unknown again. And this I think is um, Heather again, actually. And you asked her, um, yeah, this again, this was to do with romantic love. And then actually it transpires that it's totally relatable to this experience too what what advice would you give someone who hasn't met a partner when they hope to and is feeling exhausted by trying to find love and she says when you're in the throes of obsession there's a possibility that opens up every second you give up and it's not giving up on whatever on ever finding a partner or having a baby or whatever it is that you want it's giving up on trying to control what happens and that comes back to that divorcing from the outcome again doesn't it yes and it's it's such a moment of surrender to sort of give yourself over to the facts of what's happening. And I, um, there was a moment when I was um, pregnant, when I was bleeding again, and I sort of went to the work lose and I, I was almost, I can't face going to the hospital. I just, you know, when you just feel something starting and I just almost sat there on the loo and I was, I cannot go there again. And then I just, I just felt I'm either going to miscarry or I'm not. And I just gave myself over to the fact and, you know, the energy of trying to fight it, trying to guess, trying to Google. Suddenly I just sort of didn't have any energy left for anything else other than being like, I've done everything I can do over to whatever is going to happen. And she's right. I think when you, when you are a woman or a man who is somebody who is ambitious and goes after they what, what they want in work or tries really hard on their friendships or makes things happen in the world of fertility, you can, you know, I certainly, oh my gosh, studied more for that than anything I have in my whole life mm-hmm. of finding a solution of reading this. And I saw hormone specialists. I took this, I cut out, you know, so many things that I had done, stopped having plastic around or, um, and at some point getting things, it's not all on you. It is, you can do everything in the world. You can put yourself in the position, but giving yourself, letting yourself off the hook of thinking that you're responsible is a, is a freeing, um, if difficult place to get to. Yeah, I think that you use the word there, surrender, and that's something that I come back to again and again with it. And I think people often find it difficult to even contemplate the idea of surrender because it sounds like you're just giving up. But exactly as Heather says, it's it's giving up on trying to control what happens. So you're not mm. giving up on, on what you're hoping to bring into your life. You're not giving up on that. You're just giving up on the, the idea that it's all on you. And really looking and saying, okay, here which are the choices that I do get to make and that I can, you know, whether it is to actively put yourself in the best place on the fertility journey or whether it is to lean more on certain friends or to step back from certain friendships that are hurting you in that moment, or, you know, what are the decisions that you are in control of to give yourself like the kindest ride? And what are the choices that you're like, it's not on mine to make. So I can't kill myself 
from trying to like bend the universe for something that is not um, malleable, right word, or it just, um, you know, you have enough places that you can pour your energy into. Um, but I say this, you know, I wrestle with uncertainty my entire life um, and still do. Mm. Um, so for anyone listening, to, I don't want to think, uh, I certainly don't have all the answers and I keep making some of the mistakes um, that I learned in the book and then my husband would be like, didn't you write about this? I'm like, Damn it. <laughs> yeah, um, but I find that, you know, it's quite a funny place to be in terms of, you know, I found myself in this position where I um, aim to support and empower people and, and share the lessons that I learned like through my journey as a, and, and now I, I kind of find myself in a position of being a kind of mindset mentor for people, but I have to learn the lessons like again and again and again, like with yeah. what comes up in my life, I feel like I keep having to learn the lessons because it just, because we're human, aren't we? And we just keep having different challenges maybe that come up that we then have to go, oh yeah, that's that again. But it doesn't, you know, it, exactly like you say, like nobody has all the answers for you. Um, but then I think that's kind of it, that you have to, in, if you if you really want to find different ways to manage things or to cope with this, then it's it has to be down to like each individual to keep exploring what works for them because it is such an individual experience. So, you know, to say to somebody, well, you just need to do kind of, you know, some yoga every day or you need to meditate every day or this is how you're going to change your perspective. Like that doesn't work because it for some people they'd be like, well, I don't I don't like meditation or I don't, <laughs> I don't like yoga. Like, do you know what I mean? And also, do you know, actually, I was thinking of what I want to say to your listeners and something that would have been useful for me. And because it's not in the book um, and I didn't have space for it. But I speaking of when you said um, I had written that there's some areas of life that I would feel like excluded from, like I, there was a happiness that I was excluded from and my happiness was thinking, will I never know that intense love of being a mother? And people do talk about it like that, don't they? That, you know, this love that you will never know, blah, blah, blah. And um, Lucy Kalanithi, so she's uh, the widow of the author of When Breath Becomes Air. So her husband was a brain, you would love that actually. Her mm -hmm. husband um, was a brain surgeon who was dying as he was writing the book. Mm -hmm. And they decided to have a baby, even though they knew that he was dying and she said won't that be painful and he said wouldn't it be amazing if it was and they decided that that pain was worth it anyway wow she, she has a child now obviously and she watched um him die and she said to me at the time I was speaking to her and I'm um, you know not knowing if I would ever have a baby and talking about this and she said she thinks it's bullshit that the mother love is the most important love. And she said she feels that it's because most people who are parents haven't watched their partner die. And she said there is a real parallel between giving birth and to her baby and watching her husband die. And we give so much weight to the birth and that feeling of um, watching a baby come into the world. But she said, I can tell you when you are there with your partner and you are losing them, you realize the depth of that love and the meaning and the layers and the intensity of what it means to build a love with a person that is not biological, that is not born, that you have created together. And she said, if more people 
you know, parents, by the time they, they witness that death, they will understand the weight that that birth and having a child is not just the only, you know, this kind of love that you'll never feel. And so obviously it's individual, but for her, that love was just as deep, if not more so. And that really made me think about the hierarchy of love and how we put different emphasis on it. And I do also feel that now still. And I, I feel with my husband that the layers of our relationship and, you know, even through having gone on a very small fertility journey, I look at him now and I think about him holding my hand in a hospital waiting room. And I see the first time that I held him when he cried, all, all these layers of our relationship that we have built. And I wish I had known when I was trying to conceive that if you are never able to have children, that is not the number one love that you can experience. Oh, wow. That's what an incredible story to, first of all, like, I yeah, definitely want to read that book. But yes, because this is the thing that can feel so excluding to so many people who haven't experienced having a child and that they feel because that's the messaging that we continually receive isn't it you know because we put this massive emphasis on kind of that and it's particularly mother child love for some reason and you know Mm, more than the father child yeah yeah so I think again it comes down again to women just having this like I'm I'm never gonna I mean and it's difficult because, yeah, like if, if you do end up not having a child, then it's an experience that you won't have. But it it doesn't necessarily mean it's an experience which um, this is so hard to say, isn't it? Especially coming from somebody who also has children now. But I feel it's so such an important conversation to have because even if that doesn't happen, it, there are so many other forms of love which are so layered and so beautiful and so important that we just don't feel like they're on the same the same level because of what the world tells us. And the, the other thing that I certainly had was thinking, oh, I will never share this with my husband. You know, we'll never have a child together. And I wanted that to be an important part of our relationship at that point. And again, these conversations, there's so many things that were sort of guiding me during this time. But um, Justine Picardy was another person I interviewed and she had had a baby with her first husband um, and doesn't have kids with her. So she had a very painful divorce and is now remarried. And she said to me, she had thought, oh, the depth of love you have with someone when you have a child with them is this, you know, very deep magical thing. And she's like, I can tell you that I do not need to have a child with this man I am now to have that depth mm-hmm. of love in the same way, which Obviously, loads of people don't have children, we know that, but in that moment I had forgotten that. Mm -hmm. And so it was useful just for me to speak to lots of different people with lots of different experiences, people who had had children, people who hadn't. And I think that before then I had been looking to people who'd had children in very conventional ways, in very conventional relationships, um, and feeling that, that not achieving that would condemn me to a life of misery. Um, and speaking to more different people, hearing different love stories and different forms of love become more and less important to different people at different points in their life has just shown me that 
you know, Heather, again, Havrileski said to me, she thinks that love needs to be very, very important when you're younger, maybe when you're getting married, if you're, if that's what you want from a relationship and when you're trying to have a child or when you have a child. And for her, it's become almost less important as she's older. And she now centers more of her energy in her work. And she said she still loves love. And she, she said, like, she'll be looking at it for it in the old people's home. Mm-hmm. But she understands that it doesn't always have to be the defining energy of your life, that that can also come from you at different points. So it might be one year love is absolutely the most important thing and the next year it might not be yeah yeah it's so um lovely like reading all of these different perspectives because it's really hard to get a different perspective when you're in the middle of it isn't it because you're so you can and I was exactly the same like completely consumed by it consumed to the point where I wasn't able to see any other perspective so I think what you know what you've done in talking to all these different people with completely different life experiences is is the gift of kind of going okay well here you go I know it's really hard to see perspectives so here's a book (laughs) with loads of different ones um and you can just kind of dip in and out of it and the one that I really wanted to also bring up as well I know I've been talking to you for ages um was from is it I can't pronounce the name is it Lem Sissi Lem Sissi yeah thank you yeah um yeah and I loved this it says here's the gift Our experiences are bridges, not ravines, and they allow us to understand the world and its dysfunctions more. Why did we ever think that everything was perfect? Why did we ever think that loss wasn't part of what it is to be human? Why does it come as such a shock to us? Actually, the good and bad things that happen give us a great opportunity to connect with the world and to others. I loved that. Mm. Mm. In my most recent newsletter, I had spoke to a self-compassion researcher Mm. and she was actually talking to me about the difference between self-pity and self-compassion and she said (coughs) compassion is really about pulling back from your own life or longing far enough to see and understand the way that we are all connected and that we will all suffer so not not a revolutionary idea but it was really interesting to me that in order to you know, I thought self-compassion was really about looking inwards, being kind to yourself, being a good friend to yourself, which it is. But she said, it, in order to differentiate from self-pity, it's when we kind of see all these other people's different stories and all the other ways that other people suffer and that we're not so separate or cut off from them, or I, our, our experience is not so isolated, that we can be kinder to ourselves and gentler with ourselves. And I guess what writing conversations on love even before even before the book was for me was a way of continuing to remind myself all the time and and now like I recently um found out that someone close to me might be ill or that there's just a difficult situation that had come up in my life and I am now able to think yes this is hard and this is horrible but who am I to get out of a life without anything going wrong and it's, it's, it's really, it's not saying like, I don't have to think why me, you know, that's only natural, but it's just a way of accepting that it's, or just it's arrogant or, or to think that you always know how things are going to work out. So I would think I didn't see this coming. Of course, 
it's just not how you know life is this unfolding thing and when we can see that everybody else's experiences in life will unfold too I think it just can help ourselves be a little gentler yeah I'm a big fan of self-compassion and I think that it is so something that gets left behind when we're on fertility journeys because we just again like coming back to that that putting it all on us to make it work and making sure that we're kind of doing all this stuff and actually by leaning into that and by leaning into the self-compassion piece that's where we can actually again like just come out of it a little bit and see what's going on but I love that idea that it's by looking at us as a whole like as a connected um you know race that that actually adds to it that's really interesting I'm really um fascinated by that yeah you should read the latest newsletter it was really she goes into it in a lot more detail it's really interesting but I I think I would also say that women who and men who experience infertility or any miscarriage or whatever it is on that um journey I do understand that I think it is a real place that people develop love resilience courage hope all these things that we are all going to need in this life at some point and there is a way that you can feel at that time everybody else has got you know they've got kids and everyone else has got an easy ride but no one has an easy ride forever and there's definitely a way in which I think that experience that of course you would you know give up if you could but it will give you things, resources that will serve you so well in the future, I think. Um, And people who've had no, you know, I certainly watch people who, you know, met their partner so easily and got pregnant, all these things. When something does happen, Mm. it it can be really difficult to sit with yourself and understand yourself through that. Not that that's any um, consolation, but I think it's something true. I think it's something true and I think it's actually is helpful to remember because a lot of the time I see that people go through you know loads of rounds of treatment or maybe they just try for a long time and and often people will use the phrase oh nothing nothing again back to square one you know Mm. and I feel like that's never really the case you're never really back to square one because you've just been through another experience so as as painful or as or as much grief or as whatever you've been through you're not completely back to where you were because you've just been through another thing and just like it says in your book that that experience is a bridge and not a ravine and that's the connection you know to the world and people around us I love I just think that's a really I think that's a really comforting idea that nothing we go through is for nothing and also that if you are doing it with a partner if you are in a um, romantic relationship the you know I I guess the overall thing that I found in the book is that love is not the a thing you kind of are given or you acquire it's the daily choices that you make and it's how you move through the world and so the decision to you know I always used to think oh a fertility journey kind of causes you problems in your relationship and then you kind of come back together after it but what I realized is actually the love is the love is the way you try and meet each other and help each other through that and on it. And the love is not what you get at the end or what you had before. The love is the tiny ways that you are always finding your way back to each other or sensitively 
holding each other or just just creating a force that brings you back together like that is the love it's not the thing you find at the end it's how you come back together again and again so Mm. I have had a very small mercifully small experience um in that world of loss and fertility but I think it's one of the things that has deepened and made my relationship stronger like one of the most significant things more than deciding to get married more than moving in together and I feel um I feel the weight of that all the time Mm, yeah I could literally talk to you all day Natasha (laughs) I'm definitely gonna stalk you and make you come for a coffee with me but I I really really loved that chat thank you so much tell everyone about your book and where they can find it and everything conversations and love is out now um (laughs) in wherever you get your books um support your independent bookshops if you can and um there's also a newsletter and it's conversations underscore on underscore love on instagram and yeah it's I interview different experts and authors and the aim is just to look at all the different shapes that love can take in our life and how we can prioritize and put effort into all of them amazing and it's absolutely gorgeous and I love it and it's just here it is um so thank you for your work thank you for your time today and I can't I actually can't wait to share this I'm really excited to yeah let people listen to this chat and I think people get a lot from it thank you Alice and just to anyone who's listening you know I think anyone who is going through that is you know just getting through the day sometimes is amazing and I just say just be as kind to yourself as you possibly can with whatever feelings come up yes thank you so much love her thank you so much Natasha (laughs) thank you to everyone listening and please do go and follow her and find her online um, and and subscribe to the newsletter it's just gorgeous conversations underscore on underscore love is the um, social media handle for that Um, and yes the the book is amazing so do do go and buy that and give it to everybody that you know it's so special um i am really looking forward to releasing some more content to support you uh very soon if you are not subscribed to my newsletter then please do go and do that it's, this is alicerose.com um i have some new stuff coming up shortly which is going to be very helpful and hopefully life-changing because that's the kind of work that I like to do. Um, I have recently qualified as a transformational coach, which is, yeah, feeling very exciting for me because I've been doing this work now for a few years because of my own lived experience and all of the mentoring that I've done. And so now to have a professional qualification behind me feels really great. And I do share that as well because I want to say that, you know, we never know what life has in store for us and if I if someone could have told me five years ago when I was in the middle of all my infertility rubbish that I would be going you know that I would have my own business and that I would retrain and that I would be a, um, a transformational coach and I would have an online course and I would have memberships and I would have mindset courses and and you know I'd have this podcast and I'd have this wonderful amazing community I mean honestly I cannot tell you how much I would have laughed in their faces the transformational journey that I've been on myself 
that actually that happened during my own fertility journey is the thing that really does power me through this because I know what it's like to feel totally lost and confused. I know what it's like to be there. I know how crap infertility is. I know how awful it is when people say useless things to you which don't help (laughs) you know I know I get it I really do and I'm here and my community is here and this is the place to be for you if you've had enough of feeling like that and I know the ways that we can shift our perspective without ever bulldozing over the the pain and the grief um that's a really important thing to always say so yes come and subscribe let me support you let me help you transform your life and keep listening keep sharing keep rating keep reviewing keep engaging as much as you can keep engaging not just with me not just with this podcast but with the world around us even when it's going mad even when the world is mad there is so much kindness there is so much goodness and that is the That is the light that I will never stop trying to spread. (laughs) As massively cheesy as it sounds, I will not stop with that because without it, we can feel very lost. But we are here. We are not alone. We're here together. And I would love to support you further. And I will see you soon. Take care.